Okay, don't be afraid. The book of Revelation is not designed to scare you. It's designed to give you hope. It's all about hope. It's all about discipleship. But most importantly, it is all about Jesus Christ. So we are so excited to offer these sermons on the book of Revelation. We hope you enjoy them. Well, I'm grateful for Mark and Sabrina preaching the last couple weeks, giving me a couple weeks uh, to not have to write a sermon. You guys did a great job. This is difficult. I've been working on this for 15 years. Mark and Sabrina were like, okay, <laughs> let's, let's do it. But y'all have done a great job, so thank y'all so much. Um, but that means that I've had two weeks off from preaching, so I'm a little fired up. So um, get ready. <laughs> um, there was an author named Annie Dillard, and she asked one of the most important theological questions of all time. What in the Sam Hill is going on? Or as Jesus might have said, what in the name of me is going on here? (laughs) That's from a video. I stole that. I'm not really that funny. Mark did, he did a great job last week helping us to see that uh, we're about to dive into some really difficult passages in Revelation. But as we do, we need to remember that what we're dealing with here in Revelation is not the tantrum of an angry God. These are the simple facts of life. And as the Bible describes the facts of life, it's honestly, it's a mess. And one of the reasons the Bible is such a hot mess is that it's just so very honest about life, about our current reality. I mean, in the Bible, we have heroes like Abraham, who offered his wife as his sister to Pharaoh. He actually did that twice. Uh, Noah is faithful, gets on the ark, saves his family, God saves them. In response, he gets drunk and a little naked. (laughs) Uh, David is the chosen king who has serious issues with lust. Uh, He even sets up his friend, abuses his power so that he can act on that lust. In the New Testament, the disciples never understood what was going on. And then later, Paul, the New Testament pastor, He originally was the chief persecutor of Christians. I mean, that list goes on and on. The Bible is a mess. And all of these messy stories convince me one thing, that it's true. Because it explains the facts of life. There is only one who is good. The rest of us, every single one of us, we're broken. We are capable of beautiful things. We are capable of great things. But every one of us is flawed. And at any moment, we are capable of acting in ways that are directly at odds with God's will for us. And the Bible just tells it like it is. It describes what happens when we take that turn. It's always a mess. It's chaos. So the good news is that this is the story of God, the one who brings order out of chaos. The one who is powerful enough to take what's meant for evil and use it for good. He is the light shining in the darkness. And that might be the most helpful image for us to keep in mind as we begin to read this messy, messy, the rest of Revelation. As we continue to read, uh, we we have to deal with a problem. You see, the problem is if Jesus lived, suffered, dies, and died and rose again, if that happened 2,000 years ago, then why does it seem like things are getting worse? If that happened so long ago, shouldn't everything be getting better? 
If the light has already come, then again I ask, what in the Sam Hill is going on? And that is the question that Christians brought with them to that worship service when they first heard Revelation read 2,000 years ago, and it's the same question that we bring today. But the truth is, Jesus doesn't begin his message by answering that question. He doesn't begin by dealing with the problem of evil. We've already read 20% of Revelation. 20% of this letter was written before we ever get to the problem of evil. And that's on purpose. Because first, we need to understand what Eugene Peterson says. He says it like this. We need to understand that Christ is the person in whom God's will is victoriously accomplished. We need to understand that the church is the community in which we know and are known by God. And we need to understand that worship is the action by which we practice and enjoy the presence of the creating and redeeming God. Once we know that, only then does Revelation begin to wrestle with the problem of evil, because it has to be set in that context. And once that context is set, then it begins, and it describes the problem of evil on a cosmic scale. And it sums up like this, evil is simply darkness reacting to the coming of the light. One of my favorite things to do as a parent is to pick on my kids. You guys ever go into your kid's room like really early in the morning and just turn on all the lights? I go into their room and I turn on all the lights and I sing, morning's here, the morning's here. The, like really loud, they love it. They are beautiful children of God, but not at that moment. <laughs> Their faces do things that are evil. <laughs> Darkness reacting to the coming of light. And though the cosmic war between good and evil, it impacts all creation, the most important battle is actually waged in the depths of human hearts. So as Mark said last week, we're just hearing the facts of life. He walked us through chapter six, uh, that chapter where honestly all hell begins to break loose. And this is how Jesus begins to describe to his church what is going on as the kingdom of God makes its final approach, as it begins to overwhelm the kingdoms that we have created for ourselves. As he breaks the seals on those scrolls as salvation history plays out, we find that darkness begins to push back against the light, first by sending imposters who are going to pretend to be saviors, but they actually come to conquer and destroy. We find that darkness pushes against the light by sowing dissension and chaos among us, leading us to even attack and destroy one another, taking one another's lives because we disagree on ideas. Darkness begins to push against the light, causing injustice and imbalance in our legal, in our social, in our economic systems. Darkness begins to push against the light by sending death through war and famine and plague. Have these things taken place in history? They happen every day. 
When he breaks the fifth seal, we get a pause. And we hear the prayers of God's people, those who have suffered and died because of the pressure that darkness brings. We hear them cry out for God's justice. Come, Lord Jesus. And then when the sixth seal is broken, earthquakes, the sun, the moon, the stars, creation begins to fold in on itself as if it's experiencing the contractions of childbirth. But then chapter six ends with a question. In the face of all hell breaking loose, in the face of chaos unleashed, it asks this question, who can stand? Who can withstand what's happening? And it seems as if it's a rhetorical question. And the assumed answer is no one. No one can stand. This is the end. But before the seventh seal is broken, we get chapter seven. And it interrupts the story with this. After this, I saw four angels standing at the four corners of the earth, holding back the four winds of the earth to prevent any wind from blowing on the land or on the sea or on any tree. And then I saw another angel coming up from the east, having the seal of the living God. And he called out in a voice, a loud voice, to the four angels who had been given power to harm the land and the sea. Do not harm the land or the sea or the trees until we put a seal on their foreheads of the servants of our God. And then I heard the number of those who were sealed, 144,000 from all the tribes of Israel. We're going to talk about it, but this is the word of God. And thanks be to God for it. Let's pray. Father, be present with us as we quickly break down just some difficult passages. Help us to hear and receive the images that you're showing us. Help us to see how these things are playing out each and every day. And help us to remember the hope, the promise that you are coming. And we pray all this in Jesus' name and all God's people said, amen. So that rhetorical question at the end of chapter six, it actually gets a direct answer. And it's not what people would expect. It says this in verse nine, after this I looked and there before me, remember 144,000, right? But it says this, there before me was a great multitude that no one could count from every nation, tribe, people and language standing before the throne and before the lamb. You see, Revelation 6 and 7, they are connected by this question, who can withstand a world overcome by evil? As the seals are broken on that scroll that we first saw in chapter 5, the 144,000 are given a seal. And this seal is more than a match for the seals that have come before it, for everything that's been broken so far, more than enough to protect us from the consequences of evil. This seal is placed on their foreheads. And I want you to remember that for a message a couple weeks from now. So the question is, who are these 144,000? Well, John will go on to tell us that the 144,000 are made up of 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes of Israel. But this list is different than every other list in scripture of the 12 tribes. This list starts with the tribe of Judah. That's the tribe of Jesus himself. Now, I don't know about you, but 144,000 people, that doesn't sound like a great multitude that no one could count. 144,000, if we are to expect that that's the actual number of people who get to be with God forever, y'all, we're in big trouble. (laughs) 
But remember, we're reading Revelation literally, not actually. That means that we are reading this book as apocalyptic literature, the type of literature it is. And that is a type of literature that intentionally uses images and numbers and colors to paint these fantastic pictures as it pulls back the curtain, revealing to us the coming kingdom of God. Remember, it doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. So to understand this 144,000, you just have to do a little ancient math. The number 144, it's 12 groups of 12. I hope some bells just went off. Anytime you see the number 12 from a biblical perspective, what are you to think? You're allowed to answer, it's okay. The 12 tribes of Israel from the Old Testament, and what else? The 12 disciples of the New Testament. The 12 and the 12, old and new. Then just add 1,000. And this we know well from 2 Peter 3. He says, with the, day, with the Lord, a day is like a 1,000 years, and a 1,000 years are like a day. Y'all, this isn't technically math, but it is about numbers. The number 1,000 in Scripture is just a way of saying something is so large, there's not even a reason to count it. It's an overwhelming number. It's a number that the pre-mathematic mind probably couldn't conceive of counting. And we actually saw this already in chapter 5. It said, I looked and I heard the voice of many angels numbering thousands upon thousands and 10,000 times 10,000. They encircled the throne and the living creatures and the elders. It's just a way of saying, don't worry. Don't bother counting. It's a lot. 144,000, it doesn't mean what it says. It means what it means. It's symbolic of the complete family of God. The completed family of God. Represented by the tribes of Israel and the disciples of Jesus, a number beyond counting, a great multitude of people from every nation, tribe, and tongue. All of these people now are Israel, God's chosen people, blessed to be a blessing to the nations, a people who are set apart to reveal to the rest of the world the character and the power of God. And Israel is now made up of people from every tribe and nation under heaven. So what you need to know is this, if you are in Christ, it's you. If you are in Christ, you are part of the 144,000 sealed with the seal of the Lamb. It's you. And hopefully me. (laughs) And those that we know who have heard and responded to the saving love of Jesus. All right, so the question, so what? Well, a couple things. First, I think this shows us the perspective from which a Christian needs to understand evil and chaos. Now, as I've been reading through chapter 6 and 7 over the past couple weeks, I noticed something strange about the way the story is told. Now, we've already heard the sealing of God's people. It takes place in the midst of the breaking of the seven seals. Now, that's not too surprising. It makes sense. It's all about framing and contrasting images, breaking some seals, placing new ones. And in that, we hear the question, who can stand? Those who are in Christ, the people of God, can stand. But what's surprising is this. In the midst of all hell breaking loose, in the midst of chaos unleashed, it tells us that we not only stand secured and sealed by God himself, but we stand joyfully, exuberant, shouting out praises, Because we are able to turn our eyes to Jesus and see him clearly, 
even as everything around us seems to be falling apart. And what's even more amazing is this, not only are we joyful and exuberant and shouting out praise, our hope and our salvation, our joy, it somehow influences even the angels. Listen to this, he says, they were wearing white robes and were holding palm branches in their hands. And they cried out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb, that's us. And in response to that act of worship, all the angels were standing around the throne and around the elders and the four living creatures. They fell down on their faces before the throne and worshiped God, saying, amen, praise and glory and wisdom and thanks and honor and power and strength be to our God forever and ever, amen. Why are we so exuberant and joyful? So much so that we even influence the angels in heaven, it's because we are sealed and we are secured in the promises of God. We know that we are resting even now in the loving hands of a good father. In the midst of the breaking of the seven seals, in the midst of chaos unleashed throughout history, we know that we are held secure. We know the promise. They are before the throne of God, it says, and they serve him day and night in his temple. And he who sits on the throne will shelter them with his presence, and never again will they hunger, never again will they thirst. The sun will not beat down on them, nor any scorching heat. For the lamb at the center of the throne will be their shepherd. He will lead them to springs of living water, and God will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Can you say amen to that? That is the promise in which we are secure. Now that sounds beautiful, and it is true. But I know it's hard. Because the chaos around us is so present to each of us every day. So it can be difficult to remember that promise and to believe that truth. When we experience evil, we experience it completely. We experience it as total. One writer says that it's like a terrible toothache. It's a pain that's so bad that it wipes away the truth that the rest of your body's okay. (laughs) He says a broken toe, a broken toe makes it nearly impossible to remember the truth that my elbow bends just fine. (laughs) Revelation 6 and 7 uncover the truth about evil, about the way that chaos and destruction aims to attack Jesus by going after those he loves. That's the darkness and that's the facts of life. But what we know is that Jesus has overcome death. And the reason that darkness is pushing against the light, to be frank, is because it's furious. Evil knows it's overwhelmed. So like a child, it's throwing a tantrum. Evil and its minions thrashing around on the floor, refusing to be obedient until it gets its way. That's why there's chaos. The good news is, evil won't get its way. Because it's already been defeated. We are now just waiting for the final exodus of a defeated army. It's like the redcoats marching through the streets, told to lay down their weapons because they've been defeated, they're disgraced. But they might still try to cause a little trouble on their way out of town. The victory is secure, they have been defeated. We are now just waiting for them to leave for good. 
So the challenge is to choose to see the chaos around us as evidence that God's kingdom is coming. The challenge is not to blame God for evil. The challenge is to recognize that evil is the darkness responding to the coming of the light. We just sang this, the prince of darkness grim, we tremble not for him. His rage we can endure, for lo, his doom is sure. One little word shall fell him. That little word is Jesus Christ. For the second, so what, uh, quickly, um, I gave myself two options. Um, At this point, the sermon basically became a choose-your-own-adventure. I gave myself two options. Um, I could either provide you with some comforting language, or I could challenge you a little bit. Um, So I'm going to take the lead of Revelation itself and offer a little bit of a challenge. (laughs) Um, It's okay. I know you can handle it. Uh, Before we move on to chapter 8, I need to show you something from the end of chapter 6. And this came up in our discussion in our Wednesday night Revelation class. And I have to tell you that in all of Revelation, maybe in all of Scripture, what I'm about to read to me is the most shocking and terrifying image that we're going to see. Now, don't worry, it's going to be okay. This isn't to be a downer. It's a challenge. So hang in there. Listen to this. This is the end of chapter 6. The kings of the earth, the princes, the generals, the rich, the mighty, and everyone else, both slave and free, hid in caves and among the rocks of the mountains. And they called to the mountains and the rocks, fall on us and hide us from the face of him who sits on the throne and from the wrath of the Lamb. For the great day of their wrath has come, and who can withstand it? That's not us. That's the facts of life about a rebellious world that has chosen to remain in rebellion. A world that sees God, that sees that he's seated on the throne. But instead of turning to the creator, they turn to the created stuff. They ask the mountains and the rocks to hide them from the Lamb of God. Do you remember how the Lamb is described? Fully wise, all-powerful, but slaughtered. A power that seems like weakness because it's the power of sacrificial love. His wrath is overwhelming love and forgiveness. And a rebellious humanity begs created things to hide them from a loving creator. Begs created things to hide them from his overwhelming love and forgiveness. And I think that is one of the most terrifying images in all of scripture. Because it describes people who have so set themselves against the things of God that when his kingdom of mercy and forgiveness and grace finally comes in all its fullness, they will choose to hide and die rather than worship and enjoy his glory forever. Now again, if you are in Christ, that is not you. Remember what I said earlier, those who are in Christ are sealed, part of the family. We are not the ones at risk of turning to the mountains and rocks to protect us from God's love. That's not you, but it very well might be your neighbor. It might be your coworker. It might be a relative. It might be your kid. It might be your grandkid. And when we personalize it, that's when it becomes such a terrifying image. But like I said, I'm not giving this to you to be a downer. This is a challenge. And there is beauty in this. 
We can't make them choose God's love, but we do have some power. We have the power of the Holy Spirit that can help us help them understand God's love and forgiveness and mercy. Help them understand that that is good news, that it's beautiful, that it's better than anything this world can offer, that Jesus is truly the only hope for a broken world. And I think that's why even through a pandemic, especially in a difficult time like this, and especially when in a sense we are very separated from one another, we have to continue to pursue our mission and our purpose. We have to continue to work at becoming a church of disciple-making disciples who are biblically literate and spiritually formed, mission-focused, and gospel-fluent. Y'all, I truly believe that is the answer. I told you at the beginning of our study of Revelation, Revelation is not about the world blowing up. Revelation is about discipleship. It's about what it means to be a disciple of the coming Lord and to go make disciples so that they can be a part of that great multitude. I believe that that vision, this is the answer. It's how we equip one another to accomplish everything we've seen today. It's the key to obeying the great commandment to love God and to love others. The vision and the direction that God's laid out for us, I really believe it's going to help us see, choose to see goodness and hope, even in the midst of chaos. That's how we will find joy, even as the facts of life continue to play out around us. That purpose and that vision, it's also the key to obeying the Great Commission, to go and make disciples of all nations. It's how we equip one another so that we can bring others along for a ride. Because here's the truth, y'all. God has given the world, the rebellious, suffering world, he's given them a gift. Us. And I know what that sounds like. That, That doesn't mean that we're better than them. It just means that we were lost and have been found. And have now been sent in turn to help find the lost. It doesn't mean that we are better than them. It just means that we are now a blessed people so that we can be a blessing to a rebellious world. That through our blessing them, they might come to know the love of God in Jesus Christ through the power of the Holy Spirit. Now maybe for some of you, (laughs) maybe for some of you the idea of sharing your faith, that might be the most terrifying image that you've seen today. But y'all, this is all you have to do. It's very simple. Just ask yourself, Why am I convinced that the gospel is true? Why is it that I have the hope that I have? Scripture tells us to always be prepared to give an explanation for the hope we have in Christ. So begin by telling yourself. You don't have to do a deep dive into theology. You don't have to quote a bunch of scripture. Just ask yourself, why do I have the hope in Christ that I have? Then write it down. If you want to email it to me, I would love to hear it. Not critique it, I would just love to hear it. I'd love to hear your stories. Once you have done that, once you can tell yourself the reason that you have hope in Christ, then every day, everywhere you go, look and listen. Because I believe that every single day we are presented with opportunities to give an explanation for the hope that we have. I believe that people are asking us, They may not always be asking directly, but they're asking. They want to know why we have hope in the midst of the chaos. I think sometimes we just, we're not listening or we don't want to hear it. So the challenge is to look, 
to listen, take a deep breath, then take the leap and share with someone why you have hope. Y'all, the building is burning. That's a fact of life. And we may not be able to put out the fire, but we can and should do our part to help save the people who are inside. And that's our reason for being here, to worship God, to enjoy him forever, and to show others the way to freedom, to hope, to forgiveness, so that they will recognize the coming kingdom of the almighty God. And when they see it, they won't fear and hide. They will rejoice. Amen? To God be the glory. Let's pray. Father, we read this and we read difficult passages, but we read it and we study it and we have to know it so that we can be prepared to face what we face each and every day. So I pray that you would be present with us as we read the hopeful and the challenging words, as we wrestle with what it means to share the hope we have in Christ, as we look forward to the day when your kingdom comes and there will be no more fear or pain or crying or death, And that we would care enough about the people around us to make an effort to bring them along for the ride. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Thanks for listening. You can find us online at www.fpc-kingwood.org. Our services are available on our website and find us on Instagram at fpc underscore kingwood. We'll see you next time.